Uh, well, when I was young, I was really into water skiing. My family, we had a boat and we did the whole deal where, you know, you go behind the boat on the ski back and forth. And the kind of skiing that I did a lot was called slalom skiing, which is where there are buoys on each side of the boat. And a lot like what you watch in the Winter Olympics where they're trying to get around the gates, you're trying to get around buoys. And so when you're off to the side, you're going around a buoy and you're hardly moving at all. And then it just slingshots you across the wakes of the boat onto the other side and you try to go around that buoy. And it feels like a more intense version of being on a swing set. You know that feeling where you're suspended for a second and then whoosh, it takes you and then you're suspended and back. It's like that times 10. It's so much fun. And when you are crossing those wakes, I don't know how fast you must be going. It's an average of 36 miles an hour. So you must be going 50, 60, 70 miles an hour across those wakes. Really fun. Unless you fall and your face hits your ski, which is what happened to me that day. So it wasn't that bad. I just had a big gash on the side of my head. I was 17, 18 years old. And my parents are looking at it. And, you know, there's all this algae and nasty stuff in the lake that I'd fallen into. And so they're checking it out. And my dad says, yeah, you probably, you probably we need to take you into the clinic and get it stitched up. No big deal. But, uh, yeah, they, they got to look at it. So they take me into the clinic. That ends the skiing for that day. We go in there. And this really nice woman who's a nurse comes in, real cheerful. Like, you know, sometimes you get a good nurse and sometimes you get a mean nurse. We got a nice nurse, and so that was good. Uh, so she comes in, and she says, oh, yeah, let me take a look at it, and she, you know, gets her uh, antiseptic out, and then, oh, my goodness, the amount of elbow grease that she put into that wound. This nice, kind woman suddenly became this cruel, just torture just rubbing into this thing with all that antiseptic and it's stinging and burning and I'm just like ow what why are you doing that she's like there's there's algae in there there's all kind of nasty stuff in there and I gotta I gotta get it out and so at one point I was like okay can can I just do it can I clean it myself and she very sweet woman says no you may not And goes back to, to cleaning. So she, the point is, she, she's digging in there, and, and it hurts. And to, to uncover a wound and, and to touch it like that, it hurts. Uh, but the point for her was to, to heal, to clean. And oftentimes, wounds in our hearts are like that too, right? Somebody says something that touches a nerve and brings up a wound in your heart, and it, and it hurts. Uh, And the reason I say all that is because this morning, the the topic that today's story is about is for a lot of us, it's a wound. It's like having a gash on your head that the the Lord is going to come to and he's going to uncover and touch it. And as soon as we get there, I don't know, maybe a third of us are going to go, ouch, it's going to hurt. But just like that nurse, that kind-hearted nurse, She's doing this, he's doing this for the sake of healing, right? This is why the Lord touches our most tender wounds. It's to heal us. And so my prayer for you is that as we go into an area that is a wound for many, the Lord, as he touches us and as it even stings and hurts a bit, it would be a time of healing for many of us. We're going to read a story in which there are two female characters, and they're the main characters of the story, and they are both greatly desiring to have children, and the Lord is not giving them children. And even as I bring that up, some of us will go, oh, okay. 
Some of us, that'll call us back to the hardest years in our lives, right? When, when we were longing for kids and God wasn't giving them. Or for others, perhaps, the biggest crisis of our lives. For some of us, we would say not that the hardest time in our lives was when we wanted kids and God didn't give them, but, but the very opposite, the time when I didn't plan to get pregnant and I did, right? And crisis pregnancy can be a big deal. Uh, so for those of us who are hurting in that way, the Lord just means to even open that wound, even to touch it and to bring healing to it. The backstory here, these two women are named Rachel and Leah. Last week, we read to the point where Leah had borne four sons and Rachel had borne no sons. And what's going to happen now is they're going to start kind of living in the aftermath of that. And this, it's almost like a competition. The score is four to nothing now. They're going to start doing things to try to have children. And the Lord is going to speak into it with quite a bit of power. So uh, one more thing I need to tell you about the backstory. I almost forgot to mention this. Very confusing aspect of this story. But there's one man, Jacob, and he has two wives, right? He's sinned against God by taking on two wives. They're sisters, and they are competing against each other. Uh, we'll read through the story. The Lord has one very important thing to say through it, and then we'll apply that thing to many areas of life. Look with me, if you would, at Genesis chapter 30. We're going to read verses 1 through 24 together. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? And then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. And then Rachel said, God has judged me and has heard my voice and given me a son. And therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. And then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and I have prevailed. And so she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. And then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, Good fortune has come. And so she called his name Gad. And Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. And so she called his name Asher. In the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. And then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you now take away my son's mandrakes also? And Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come in to me for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. 
And then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. So she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Words of the Lord. Through that story, our Lord shows us that only he can create new life. Short version of the story, you might summarize it, is that both Rachel and Leah, in competition with each other, they try some very twisted things in order to have children. And as they do this, three times in the beginning of the story, in the middle of the story, and then at the end of the story, the Lord demonstrates his sovereignty. As it says, the Lord remembered her and the Lord opened her womb. And so the big point here is that while we try all this stuff in our attempts to create new life and have children, there is only one who has the power to create new life. There's only one who can grant conception in the womb, and that one is our Lord, that is our God, that is Jesus Christ. So this is a story about Jesus' lordship over new life, over the creation of life in the womb. And we will see later even a story about his lordship over the creation of new life in the church. Because this story for the people of Israel, for 11 of the 12 tribes of Israel, was the story of how they came to be. So it would be a little bit like us reading the founding of the state of Indiana. If they were of any tribe other than the tribe of Benjamin, they would look to the story and say, here's how we came to be, and it was by miracle. So even the people of God have come to be by miracle, and even new life among the community of God, the new life we are looking for as a church, comes by miracle from the hand of God. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to walk through the story first, and I'm going to try to draw out some of the points that the author is making intentionally. They all point to that one thing, though, the lordship of Jesus Christ over new life. And then we will take those points and we'll apply them to many areas of life. It has meaning for those of you that desire children. It has meaning for those of you that desire not to have children. It has meaning for some political issues that we'll talk about, and it even has meaning for us as a church and the growth and the new life that we hope to see as a body here. So we'll walk through the story first, then we'll apply it to all of those areas one at a time. Let's have a look at the story first. The story begins in earnest a few verses before what we read here. This is a continuing of the same story that we looked at last week. Last week, now if you're in a Bible, you can just scan back up to 29 verse 31. Uh, The story really begins there. When the Lord sees that Leah is hated, it says, and he opens her womb, but Rachel is barren. So the story begins then with the Lord being the one to open Leah's womb and the Lord being the one to close Rachel's womb. So right out of the gates, we've got this statement that the Lord's in charge of it. That's how he starts it. Leah bears four children, evidently in very quick succession, and then we get to the part that we began reading today. Rachel sees that her sister has four children, and she hasn't born any in this time, and so she gets upset. She goes to Rachel and says, you better give me kids or I will die. And Jacob's response 
is first to get angry, it says. His anger is kindled at her. And then he says to her something that is technically correct. Am I in the place of God? God is the one who has withheld the fruit of the womb from him. So he, he does get angry at her. He does seem to understand that it's God who's in charge. And he also scolds his wife. There's also something he doesn't do, and that's very important. Uh, the reason we can say there's something he doesn't do is because Stories like this tend to happen over and over again in Genesis. This is kind of an important principle for interpreting Genesis. The same thing happens over and over again, right, generation to generation. And when it does, what the author is inviting you to do is compare it with the last time that it happened. This is now the third time in Genesis that one of the main female characters is suffering through barrenness. And so the author invites us then, okay, look at the last times that this happened. Do we see anything similar or do we see anything different from the last times? Well, the last person to face this particular hardship was Jacob's mother, Rebecca. And we can flip back to chapter 25 and see what happened there. Chapter 25, verse 21. We'll flip to this one. We won't flip to the other one later. Okay, so what Jacob does again is he acknowledges God's sovereignty, he gets angry, and he scolds Rachel. What does Isaac do in the same situation? Verse 21, and Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. That points out what Jacob did not do. He did acknowledge God's sovereignty. He got angry and he shouldn't have. He scolded his wife and he shouldn't have. What did he not do? He didn't pray to the Lord. So by leaving that out after intentionally recording it in the last generation, this narrator is pointing out, hey, Jacob forgot to pray. He even knew that the Lord was in charge of the situation, but he didn't pray for his wife. So here is someone who knows the truth, knows that God is in charge, knows that God is the Lord of the womb, and rather than that pushing him toward prayer for his wife, it pushes him toward anger against his wife and scolding his wife. So after this, and after this doesn't go well, uh, then Rachel tries something else, and we're invited to compare that with even a previous time when another woman faced the same suffering of barrenness, that was Sarah. Uh, we saw two generations ago that Abraham's wife, Sarah, after receiving a promise she would have a son, it goes decades not bearing a son. She's become even older at this point, and the way of women has stopped to be with her, and there seems no hope that she might have a child. Uh, we won't turn there, but the way that she handled it was she took one of her maidservants and forced her to marry her husband, Abraham, as a second wife, a slave wife, so that she could do this kind of forced slave surrogate mother kind of deal and bear a child for her to receive. Now, even in that story, you can tell the Lord frowns upon that because it's very different from what God sets out in Genesis 2 of how man and wife are meant to come together and conceive a child themselves. And it's condemned in the story. The Lord shows up and rescues Hagar, the woman, and her son, uh, Ishmael, and even creates a mighty nation out of them and lifts them high. So it's plain from Sarah and Abraham's story that whatever you do, 
definitely don't force one of your servants to marry your husband as a third, fourth, second slave wife and try to bear a child through that. Like that's the last thing you should do. We got that from a previous story, right? So what does Rachel do? Exactly that, right? She does the very same thing that her grandmother-in-law had done. And so we know from the previous story that's not the way to do it. It does, in a sense, work. The servant girl bears two children, and Rachel seems to receive them, take them into her arms, name them herself. Uh, She says, for one, uh, the Lord has given his judgment, the gavel has fallen, and I have a son. This is bragging at her sister, right? The Lord has given me a son. What do you got now, Leah? Now I have one, too. And then for the second one, she says even more plainly, I have wrestled with my sister and I have prevailed, right? I am back on top. Now I've got two sons, right? That word for wrestling even, even means twisted, right? And so that's why sometimes we say these are twisted means that they are using against each other. Well, next we see that Leah hears this taunting. She sees that her sister is catching up to her. I mean, it's, it's a sport at this point. And the score is four to two. She's being threatened. She's being taunted. And so she says, well, I'm not bearing any more children. I guess I need to take matters into my own hands too. And she does the same thing. She gives one of her servant girls to Jacob. So now Jacob's taking a fourth wife and is bearing children through this girl. And two children are born through that means. And Leah says at one point, I am so happy good fortune has come. And then for the other one, oh, I'm so blessed. And doesn't everyone know it? Everyone, women call me blessed all over the world. She doesn't mention the one who blessed her in either one. She says, good fortune has come for one, not from anywhere. Happy am I, for women have called me happy in the other, but no source of that blessing. She doesn't acknowledge God in any of them. She's really just bragging over her sister to say, look how blessed I am, sister. So these two are pitted against each other in this war to see who can bear the most children. So now the score is either six to two or it's four to nothing, depending on how you want to count it. It's just rather disgusting that it's a score in the first place. And if things have been weird so far, they're about to get a little stranger even, right? So by this point, Leah's first batch of children are growing up and one of them's out in the field during the wheat harvest and he finds this plant called a mandrake. Uh, a mandrake is a, it's a garden type plant and it's got a root like two carrots joined together, like carrot that splits in two toward the bottom. And it's got these kind of lettuce leafy things on the top and then there are these little yellow tomato-like fruits. And so he finds some of those and he pulls them up and he brings them to his mom and he's like, mom, look, now you can get ahead again. And, and us in the modern world, we're like, what on earth? Like, what's going on, right? Well, in that day, they believed that the mandrake plant had some fertility powers to it. Uh, They believed that you could get pregnant if you, we don't really know how, if you ate some or if you had it nearby or who knows how it was used for that. So the idea is, here, mom, if I give you these, maybe you'll have more children and you'll get ahead in this game. So he gives them to his mom, Talia. Rachel comes to her and she says, hey, I want those mandrakes. Please, please give them to me. 
And she's kind of in charge in the house. Leah kind of has to give them to her. So Leah looks to her and she says, you took my husband from me. Now, now you want, are you just going to take everything from me? And so Rachel says, well, okay, fine. G- give me some of the mandrakes. Give me, actually, give me all of the mandrakes and you can have Jacob for the night. We'll just, we'll just see who comes out on top. So what Rachel is doing is she's placing her confidence in this superstition that having mandrakes will give you fertility, will give you more children. So much that she's willing to give up the husband, which actually is a necessary part of having children, so that she can have the mandrakes, right? And, and the point is, who does it work for? Does it work for Rachel or does it work for Leah? It works for Leah, right? And it even says why in verse 17. Because God listened to Leah, right? So she's got the husband and God listens to her and there are the two ingredients that you really need to bear a child. So the author's making there a point against superstition, which we think of as something more common in that world until one becomes very desperate to get pregnant in our world, and then suddenly we're willing to try anything. And that person on YouTube with a lab coat on saying, oh yeah, this, this essential oil here that I'm selling, if you take that, that will work. Or all of a sudden that becomes appealing when we're very desperate to have these things that we want so much. And we have the word here reminding us, superstition isn't what does it. No, it's the Lord listening to you as husband and wife come together. That's what does it. So once again, the Lord is making that point of his own sovereignty over the womb. Leah bears several children now because the Lord listens to her. And then finally, we see in verse 22 that God listens to Rachel once again. 22 says, God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and God opened her womb and she conceived and bore a son. Do you see that repetition? He remembered her, he listened to her and he opened her womb. There's emphasis there. It is God who did this. She has tried many things to bear children. And what's the one that works when the Lord sovereign over her womb says, okay, now, now is the time. So once again, beginning of the story, middle of the story and the end of the story the lord is showing his sovereignty over this process that he is the one who is lord of the womb interestingly all three characters acknowledge that they understand this in chapter 29 verse 32 leah says it's the lord who has done this And then in chapter 30, verse 2, Jacob looks at Rachel and he says, Am I in the place of God? It's God who has withheld the fruit of the womb from you. And then in chapter 30, verse 6, Rachel says, It is the Lord who has done this. All three of them mentally know that it's God that's in charge of this process. And yet in different ways, all three of them are kicking against it. And this is that picture of the human heart that I think almost all of us can relate to, right? Whether it's children we're desiring or some other thing that we're desiring, we know God's in charge. And yet there's part of our heart that is kicking against that and saying, why isn't this the way that I want it? And so the big thing the Lord here is saying is, I am the sovereign one. I am the one who is sovereign over new life. And that means 
so much of us, so much for us today. The main thing it does is it corrects a lie that is in all of our hearts, which says, I should be in charge of whether I have kids or not. Don't we all want that? We grow up and we say, I'm going to have three kids, and I'm going to have one when I'm 25, and one when I'm 28, and one when I'm 30. Right? We got the whole thing mapped out, and then the Lord says, I'm the one in charge of when and how you have children. Right? So the heart change God is calling us to here is to put ourselves under His Lordship that looks up to Him and says, God, it is you who are in charge of every time the womb conceives. Every time someone is given a child, Lord, it is you who gives us that child. There's something of what it means to live under God's lordship and live in the fear of God. So that's what he's calling us to this morning. It means a lot of things. It means something for those of us who long for children or or at one point longed for children, whether the Lord gave them to you or not. It means something for those of us who don't want to have children. Uh, It means something for political issues and something for the church as well. So let me walk through all of those together. When it comes to the desire to have children, that that wound that I talked about earlier, that for some of us was met and for some of us was not met. Some of us look back on that as hard days. Some of us are young and looking forward perhaps to the day when God gives us a wife or gives us children. In many other situations, I'm sure where you can connect to that. The first step God's calling us to, the heart change he's calling us to, is coming under his lordship when it comes to children and how and when they are given. We come under him, which means in the beginning, especially if we haven't entered that phase of life, Moving all of those plans that say, okay, I want to have this many kids, and I kind of hope the first one's a girl and then a boy after that, and all that planning out that we do in our mind goes from a picture of our future that we expect to receive to a request up to our Lord in heaven. Do you see the difference between saying, I'm going to have this many kids and it's going to be like this, versus saying, Lord, would you give to me? this many children at this time? Lord, would you give it like this? We'll take whatever you give me, but Lord, would you give this? There's the heart change we're called to as we enter into that phase of life. It means that for couples desiring to have children, uh, it means that we have means that God has given us for the creation of those children. Uh, We see that through their actions, Rachel and Leah do some very twisted things to try and have kids, right? And, and we can look at that and say, oh, that was weird. That was, that was twisted. Let's not do that. Some of those boundaries of don't cross this and try to do this when we're conceiving children come alive for us in that story. So it gives us some boundaries and some barriers, but also the Lord does give us means by which we should seek children and should try to have children. So essentially we have two means that God has given us. When you desire children and you're married, well, what do we do now that we want kids? Two things. The thing Jacob forgot to do, which is prayer, right? Ask the Lord for the children you want. And then Genesis 2 and Genesis 4 outline what we were all taught when we were young, how babies are made. The Lord says, uh, he gives the, the wife to the husband 
And he says, man shall leave father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. Right? That's his design. And two chapters later, at the beginning of chapter 4, it says, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore a son. And she said, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. So there we have how it's done. This may sound plainly obvious to many of you, but husband and wife together with the help of the Lord, and there is how children are conceived. So, so what do you do if you're married and you desire children? Continue coming together and ask the Lord for children. Those are the means that he gave us for doing that. We don't pursue other means that are unnecessary for that. No, we go to the Lord and ask because he is the one who is Lord over the womb. Sometimes you try that for a while and it's not working, and so you start to ask, oh, okay, what do, we, what do we do now? And that's where these boundaries, these lines come in. We don't follow the paths of Rachel and Leah. We don't follow the paths of Jacob. No, we follow the path the Lord gave us. So we got a couple of boundaries here uh, that I want to go through that can give us some ethical guidance in that crazy world of fertility technology where we're all trying to figure out, okay, what do we do with that? Never thought we'd have the ability to do that kind of stuff in a scientific lab. A couple of boundaries here. First, don't look to superstition, right? That's what Rachel does with the mandrakes. Don't look to superstition. Second, don't do anything unjust to anyone else. That's what they do when they force their slaves to marry Jacob as third and fourth wives. And third, don't violate the one flesh union of man and wife. The Lord wants two to come together, man and woman, husband and wife. Don't go any farther beyond that. Let me take those one at a time. First, I mentioned this earlier, but Rachel is seeking superstition when she seeks those mandrakes, right? Uh, there's some kind of mysterious spiritual fertility power that they have, and oh, if I just had those, I'd be able to conceive, and it doesn't work. Why doesn't it work? Because it's the Lord who's over that, not these little superstitious things. And as I said earlier, that can seem a little silly when we're sitting in a normal phase of life. But when you long for children and the Lord isn't giving them, then suddenly that essential oil salesperson starts to make a whole lot more sense. And that person on YouTube that says, well, if you just get this plant of a daffodil here and grind it up and put it in tea, then magically you will conceive. All of a sudden there is an allure to that. If that day comes, remember the story and remember that the mandrakes don't do it. It is the Lord's will that do it. There's the first one. Don't look to superstition. Secondly, we saw in the giving of servants to Jacob as wives that that's unjust treatment of others in the attempt to have children, isn't it? And so we learn a lesson from that. Don't treat someone else unjustly in that great desire to have children. Uh, the desire comes, it's strong, and it can move us to do things that are harmful to other people. The main way that this is done today in modern technology is in the destruction of human embryos on purpose. It's now possible to take cells from a man, cells from a woman, put them in a scientific lab and make a dozen or more tiny human embryos. And then take half of them, put them in the woman's womb and save the other half for later to either be frozen or eventually destroyed. Treating them not as if they were human beings, but just as if they were little pieces of cell in a lab. I can think of hardly any greater power imbalance there, can you? Little tiny humans in a dish who can do nothing to protect themselves. 
They can't even think the thought necessary to protect themselves. And then a doctor, a husband, and a wife who have full power and control over what happens to them. So there's a power imbalance, not a whole lot unlike the power imbalance that these women had over their servants when they forced them to marry Jacob as a third and fourth wife. We get a lesson there. When there's someone who's powerless who you have power over and you could harm in your desire to make a family and have kids, the Lord says, don't do it. Don't hurt someone else. Even if that someone is only two cells or four cells big, a person is a person no matter how small. And so don't harm anyone. So that gives us a very strong principle for when we're wading into that world of fertility technology. Humans are humans. Don't treat them unjust. Yeah, that is Dr. Seuss, by the way. Yes. Uh, <laughs> he's, he's right. <laughs> he's right. So uh, humans are humans no matter their size, no matter how many cells make them up. Third, then, there is the design that God makes. Husband and wife, they come together, their bodies in this mysterious union that the cells from the man, the cells from the woman make the child. We see our characters violate that, don't we? When they say, okay, here's, here's another servant. Why don't you take her and she can be a surrogate mother for me? Now, if God's means are prayer and the one flesh union between husband and wife, well, that gives us another principle here that goes beyond just don't come together in intercourse with someone else to try to conceive a child. Some do that. But I think we can even apply that to say, don't take the seed of a husband, the egg of the wife, and put them in the body of a third person. We're joining three people together when we do that, aren't we? Or we take the seed of another man and put it into the wife so that she can conceive. Now she's joined with someone who is not her husband. So there's so many options here that violate that one flesh union with which we must be very careful. Now, only two bodies should come together in this conception process. So Christian couples often have to look at these options and make the very hard decision to say, okay, that is tempting, but it's off the table because it destroys human embryos. That is tempting, but it's off the table because I'd have to join my body with someone who is not my husband in order to do it. That can make a couple feel helpless, right? We've got all these tools, and I can't use them. What am I going to do? I just want to give you one stat that can help with that. Did you know all of that fertility technology, the combined effectiveness rate is 29%. One round of IVF costs twelve dollars to $15,000, and it's roughly... I don't know exactly how effective it is. Certainly not very effective. What do we have as Christians, though? We have access to the God in heaven who reminds us three times in this story, I am Lord over the womb. Come to me. Ask me. Now, even that's not 100% effective. He can do what he wants to do, but he is more inclined to hear that voice of his children who ask him. And we even read multiple times in the story, God listened to her and opened her womb, even after years of barrenness and infertility. So what Christian couples must do is take these options off the table that hurt others, that use superstition, that join bodies with someone that is not the husband or the wife, and instead look to prayer to the God of the universe who can create life.
Before we move on, I do need to mention it's not in this story, but there is yet another way that couples often find children after the children are conceived and born, and that's adoption, which the Lord smiles upon very much. That is very much an option on the table for Christian couples. Not mentioned in this story, but I just felt it would be remiss if I didn't at least say that. That option is there for you. The Lord may call you to that as well. Let's move on, though. Let's apply this to those of us who are in the opposite situation, because that matters as well. Uh, Some of us get married, and we love being together, and we say, this is a good life, and I'm not really sure we want to add kids to this. It's even more common these days. And the same principle holds true for couples who do not want to have children. Who's the one who's actually Lord over whether or not the act leads to pregnancy? It's God who is Lord over that. There's a statistic you need to know, too, if you don't plan to have children. Half of all pregnancies in the United States are unplanned. And I bet if we looked around this room and we said, hey, everybody look back, did your children come exactly when you planned them to come? I bet that would be true of almost none of us. So for those of us that are not desiring to have children, the main advice I have for you from this story is just be prepared to be surprised. The Lord can do whatever he wants. Uh, Depending on what means you're using, the odds are either very small but not zero, or the odds are a little bit bigger than very small. And if the day comes when she comes to you and says, honey, I'm pregnant, you better take her out to the nicest dinner you've ever taken her out to, never look back and raise up that awesome steak and say, Lord, you have given us a good thing. Let her hear your voice say it and never look back. Why? Because it's God who gave you that child. It is God who is Lord of the womb. That means dads, if your unmarried daughter comes to you and says, dad, I'm pregnant. Before you start thinking about, wait, did, did, did she sin against God or did somebody sin against her and force her? What happened? Before you start thinking about any of that, tell her congratulations. Take her to dinner. Do something to celebrate and thank God who has given you a grandchild because it was God who put that child in her womb. It is God who gives every child who has ever been born. So if the Lord surprises you, which he can, don't look back. One thing I tell couples when they're planning to get married, they ask often about birth control. Can we use birth control? Is it a sin to use birth control? And and what I tell them is this, and I'll tell you now. Birth control isn't necessarily a sin, but it is a myth. Why? Because it's called birth control. And who's not actually in control of when we have children? Us. Who is in control? The Lord. So use it if it's ethical to use it and if it works for your family, but don't trust in it because none of it is 100% effective. So that's what it means for those of us that long for children, and that's what the Lordship of Jesus over the womb means for those of us who don't want to have children. Uh, let's, let's move on and, and uh, think about what it means for our culture as a people. This is a tough message for Americans to receive because we just kind of, we just think as Americans that we ought to be in charge of the important details of our lives, right? I shouldn't be responsible for anything that I didn't choose. That's kind of the American cry, right? My body, my choice is said by many. And so when we look at those sort of important things about who I am, man or woman, Uh, what sort of career I'm going into, 
whether the act leads to pregnancy or not. These things are so dear and so intimate to us that it just doesn't feel right that a God in heaven should get to assign all of that to us. It just bristles against the American conscience to think, God made me a man or God made me a woman and he declared to me what that means and he didn't even ask me what I thought, right? Because I should be in charge of the important things in my life, right? I should get to pick that. And so we're rebelling against so many created things because we want to be in charge of this as a culture. That has led to a scenario now where now that Roe has been overturned by the Supreme Court, there are so many women, particularly on the American left right now, who are afraid. They're, they're seeing what they see as kind of a rogue Supreme Court taking away from them one fundamental right, and who knows what's coming next. And that strikes fear in the heart. Uh, One writer for The New Yorker recently put it like this. She said, it's now possible in all, or she said, soon it will be possible in 20 states in the union for a man to impregnate you, for you to have to go through nine months of pregnancy, then have to go to childbirth, And then in most cases have to raise this child for 20 years, all without your desire to do any of it, all without your permission. Because it feels like the whole thing's been forced upon you. And at the heart of that cry is the cry, I should be in charge of whether that act leads to pregnancy or not. It's the same thing Rachel and Leah are crying out. I should be in charge of whether that act leads to pregnancy. And that's why the principle we're learning here can really help to dismantle pro-choice logic. It's not me who should be in charge of whether the act leads to pregnancy. No, the Lord says from heaven, I decide when the act leads to pregnancy. So I know I've already said some offensive things this morning. Here's the most offensive thing. It's not a woman's right to choose. Why? Because it's the Lord's right to choose whether the act leads to pregnancy. All right. Now that means that if the Lord has blessed your womb with a child, it is the Lord who has given it. And what a Christian woman says that a woman who lives under the Lord, and I've seen Christian women get pregnant in crisis situations, look to God and say this very thing, Lord, I did not choose for it to go this way, but you did. And so I receive this child as a gift and I'll raise it with all I've got. That's what it means to have an unexpected, unplanned pregnancy under the good lordship of Jesus, receiving that child as a gift because God is the one who gives life. Lastly, that very principle means a lot for us as a church, too. If God's the one who is sovereign over new life, Well, that matters for us because we want new life at our church, don't we? A little bit different type of new life, but we want new life here. And the Bible actually traces really clearly the parallels between situations like the one we read about with Rachel Leah, when, when a woman is longing for a child and the Lord isn't giving one just yet. Parallels between that and the new life we are looking for in Jesus Christ. Maybe a simpler way to say that would be that birth in the Old Testament is a picture of the new birth in the New Testament. That new birth 
being the recreation that happens when we come to Jesus Christ. We trust in him in faith and he makes us new. So there's a lot of parallels between this and church growth and conversion and baptisms and things that we care very much about. This comes very plain in John chapter 3. A man named Nicodemus is coming to Jesus and he sits before him and Jesus teaches him. And the lesson Jesus chooses to give to him starts like this. Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So so in order to come to Jesus, receive him in faith, receive the kingdom of God, to enter into the kingdom, you got to be born again. And understandably, Jesus, or Nicodemus is very confused by this. What, you got to enter into your mother's womb a second time and come out again. What? And Jesus says, no, it's like this. He says, the wind blows wherever it wants to, right? And you hear it coming, but you don't really know where it's coming from and where it's going, but it does what it does. And so it is with anyone born of the Spirit. Spirit comes, it goes, it does what it wants. We don't understand it and we can't control it, but it does what it does. So now we've got a third thing to compare it to. Now we can compare it to the weather. And that is kind of how the weather is, isn't it? We've got all kinds of technology to predict it, but we still don't really understand it, do we? You ever pull your phone out? And this happened to be this week. It said the high today is 92, the current temperature is 97 right? It just doesn't add up, right? We still can't predict what's going to happen even tomorrow with the weather. It's that mysterious. We wouldn't even think about trying to control the weather and turn the thermostat down tomorrow so it could be more pleasant, right? It's mysterious. We don't understand it. We have no control over it. The Lord just does what he does. Well, that's just like conception of children in the womb, isn't it? It's very mysterious. We think we might understand it, but then it comes very plain. We don't understand it, and we just can't control it, right? Birth control is a myth. IVF doesn't usually work. Sometimes it does. We don't have that sovereignty that we want. Well, Jesus says the new birth works the same way. You can sow the seed of the gospel. You can declare it And there's something very mysterious that happens to the heart when the heart receives it. We don't quite understand that, do we? And we definitely wouldn't think about trying to control it, right? We definitely wouldn't, like I would not stand up here and say, okay, what I want today is for this half the room to come to Jesus and this half the room to not come to Jesus. That's my declaration, right? It just doesn't work because we don't have that kind of control over the word when it is cast like that. No, the Lord is sovereign over new life, just as he is sovereign over the original birth in the first place. That means something very profound as for us as a church. Because often we can feel a lot like Rachel and Leah feel when they're, Rachel's looking at Leah, who's got four sons, and she's like, why don't I have any of those, Right? And we can look at our history as a church and say, well, why is it that there are times where people are flooding in the doors and coming into Christ all over the place, and then we preach the same message 10 years later, and and there's nobody left, and it doesn't seem to have any effect. And then all of a sudden, again, somebody else comes to Christ, and then for a while, nobody does. And why doesn't this seem to go the way that we would plan it? Why does it seem like there are patches of spiritual barrenness 
in the church's history? And the answer for us is the same as it was for Leah and Rachel. The Lord works in very mysterious ways, and he can give new life whenever he pleases. The means for us to bring about that new life are the same. It is prayer and using all of the means that he gave us in his word. And so whether it appears to work or not, our strategy for church growth is pray like crazy and ask the Lord to grow the church and do all the things that he told us to do in his word, which sound same old, same old, because we've been doing them for 2,000 years, but things like preach the word of God, share the word of God with our neighbors, pray that the Lord would bless it, baptize people, have the Lord's supper, practice membership in a meaningful biblical way, govern the church in a biblical way, uh, do the supper together, try to do all of our ministries in a way that is biblically wise with the wisdom that God gave to us. We just continue on with the same things that the Lord taught us. The same way that married couples pray and just continue on in the act that they pray one day brings new life. That may not sound very overwhelming as a church growth strategy, but that's our church growth strategy. Just keep doing the things that the Word says to do and bathe it in prayer. So as we go forward, that's what we'll continue to do. The Lord gives us blessing through it every now and then. We pray that a great revival happens here, but we're not changing tactics. We'll preach the gospel, we'll disciple, we'll baptize, we'll have the supper, we'll do membership, we'll do all the stuff that the word tells us to do, and we will gather together in fervent prayer asking him to bless it. So that's what that means for our church. The overarching theme here is that in childbirth, in church growth, we must let God be God. We have a way we think it ought to go. And the Lord says, here is my strange-looking plan from heaven. It looks strange to us because we don't understand it. We must let God be God. And for some of us, this is the barrier that keeps us from coming to Jesus Christ for salvation. We would be fine with him being Savior and giving to us all of those things. But we're not okay with him being God who orders the details of our lives. So my call to anyone who is considering trusting Jesus today is simply this, to trust him as Savior is to trust him as Lord and is to come under his good lordship, which is good for everyone who is under it. So I call you, I call everyone here, would you turn to him, would you let Jesus be God, and would you trust him in saving faith? Let's pray together, let's ask the Lord for revival even right now.